and welcome to the final episode of Pharmacological Histories, a series from the MIT Press Podcast. In this collection of interviews, we've heard a variety of authors talk about their research into the use of drugs in all kinds of contexts. In this, the final episode of the series, I'll be asking Andy Roberts about his book, Divine Rascal. Published in November of last year by Strange Tractor Press, this book is a biography of Michael Hollingshead a relatively unknown figure who's had an outsized impact on psychedelic culture in the 20th century and as such, popular culture as we know it today. Michael Hollingshead's advocacy for the psychedelic experience brought him into contact with all kinds of weird figures, from KGB spies to countercultural gurus. However, his acquaintances rarely went unscathed by their interactions. Andy Roberts' book is the first real attempt to accurately portray the life of one of the counterculture's most unpleasant, interesting, and influential figures. Content warning, this conversation features mention of drug addiction, domestic violence, abuse, and sexual assault. So I've been doing interviews with a couple of different people talking about the sort of historical dimensions of different drugs and kind of talked about them in medical contexts, in recreational contexts. And obviously this book is like perfect for that because it's the history of this guy who had a huge influence on how lots of people take drugs. And I thought what would be good to start is I wanted to ask you about the sort of broader project of yours, if you will, about mapping kind of British psychedelic history and where this book and where Michael Hollingshead sits within that project. Yeah, okay. I'll, I can ramble at length on that one. Uh, I mean, I've been an active participant, shall we say, in the, in the counterculture since ooh, about September 1972, I think it was. And an avid reader of everything countercultural from Britain and America and very very deeply interested in the history of psychedelics and LSD. So I'd, I'd read about... Um, you know, Hollingshead and all those people. And then I started writing books in, in the sort of mid-90s, and I've written books on folklore and UFOs and things like that. And then in the um, sort of mid-2000s, about 2006, I thought, I wonder if there's been a book written on the history of LSD in Britain, because I'd really like to read it, because I just read um, Storming Heaven and um, Acid Dreams, you know, the American histories, and I thought, they're really good. There's got to be something like that in Britain. So, I, you know, I thought probably wasn't I wasn't aware of one but I thought I'll do some deep searching and lo and behold there was nothing there, there was no book on the history of LSD or psychedelic drugs in Britain and that boggled me so I thought well if I don't write one who's going to write one and you know because this 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 history is rapidly dissipating as people die or you know get dementia or forget what they did in the past and so on and so forth so I thought it's, it's a vital part so anyway I started research for the book that eventually became Albion Dreaming, which is the social history of um, LSD in Britain. And as part of that research, Michael Hollingshead's name cropped up over and over again. Now, obviously, because I was fairly well read in, in the history of drugs in Britain, I, I knew who he was. You know, I knew he's the, the guy who turned Leary on. And I thought, well, you know, that's just it. But when I was writing Albion Dreaming, I came across all sorts of interesting references to, to what he got up to in London and uh, in Nepal and in Scotland. And um, I, I briefly, I think I wrote about four or five pages about him in Albion Dreaming, and then more or less um, uh, forgot about him. And then in um, 
ooh, I don't know, about 2011, and I was sort of casting around for, for something to write. I, I, I was looking through all my files, and I found that I had quite a thick folder on, on Hollingshead. So I read through it, and I thought, wow, this is amazing. This guy's got such a story. Um, it should be fairly easy to, to write a really good book about him. And the plan was to, to, to knock it out in a couple of years. So I started research, and of course, as with anything, when you start researching it, more and more stuff keeps coming out of the woodwork, and uh, the story expanded, and I kept finding stuff that was just staggering, really, and which had been completely missed out of all the American histories. It's almost as though they airbrushed Hollingshead out, other than the occasional mention of him turning Leary on. So anyway, that, that's how it came about, and what I thought would take two years to write eventually took seven. <laughs> okay, perfect. Yeah, so I think... A lot of people listening will know Timothy Leary, but unless people have read the book, I, I doubt they'll know about Michael Hollingshead. So maybe for sort of like the first half of the conversation, we could kind of sketch out a bit of a chronology. And obviously, we'll, it's only a brief conversation, so there's plenty we'll miss out. But I thought, could you sort of talk about how this sort of young boy in the northeast of England, the, the sort of ascent from childhood to his first encounter with LSD in, is it in Texas? Absolutely. Michael Hollingshead, he was, he was uh, born in Darlington in the north of the east of, of England, which in the 1930s, when he was born, he was born on the 30th of September 1931, I think. And at that time, Darlington was a fairly grim place, famous only really for the many uh, collieries that, that surrounded it and for it being um, a rail terminus, quite a grimy place. And he was born into, into this world and his father was... Um, uh, was a collier sort of chap. And that was the culture in those days. You know, men were men and, and women were afraid of it, basically. So Hollingshead grew up and he was a normal uh, child, played football, you know, liked other sports, reasonably intelligent, but nothing massively outstanding at that time. But as he grew a bit older, he suddenly realised that his father was committing a lot of domestic violence against his mother and he really didn't like this. And it came to the point where he came home one, one day in the, um, I think it's the, the mid early to mid-40s, and found his father beating his mother up. So he tried to intervene, you know, as, as a child naturally would. But his mother turned on him and gave him a, you know, a, a, a castigating for trying to interfere in, in adult business. Now, this blew Hollingshead's young mind. He just didn't understand why his father would beat his mother or, even worse, why his mother would stop him preventing that happening. As he said to his, his daughter Vanessa in later years, it was then that I threw away the key. And that was mm. the start of a separation from his parents. After that, he appeared to get a little bit, um, I suppose, delinquent, if you like. And then in the, about 1947, something happened. He did something which ended up with him being sent to a special school called Red Hill School, which was at East Sutton in Surrey. It was run on the lines of um, uh, Emma Freud, sort of, you know, therapist and things like that. Now, nobody knows why he was sent there. The school's records are closed for about another 50 years or so. And his remaining family who would know but have never actually said what it was, his sister, just just won't talk about it. Um, So we don't know. But if you consider that at that time in Britain, that school only took 40 people a year and they had to be recommended by the local council. So it must have been something quite significant to get there. And other pupils who were there were there because of things like um, serious theft, serious violence or a, a variety of sexual offences. So we might assume that it was something along those lines. So effectively, he was ripped away from his parents, from his hometown, 
sent almost 300 miles south to this this school, which was run on, to him, really strange principles. There were no rules. Um, staff and uh, the pupils there called each other by their first name. The pupils decided what lessons were taught and decided on punishments for people. They had like a school council. And he was into this world where he slowly started to realised that he was very clever at manipulating people. And mm. his school friends who I've spoken to from that period of time say that he had a, a gift for manipulation, a gift for mimicry. He's very good at copying people's voices. And he was always at the centre of any, any unusual sort of action that was going on. Mm. So he went through that school. He was very good at art and he contributed poetry and prose to the school magazine. And, and he was very sort of creative. But obviously, all things come to an end. And in 1952, I think it was, no, 1949, he left Red Hill School and he, he, he had to do national service, which was at that time a thing that every young man who wasn't in a reserved occupation had to do, which was two years military service. Now, we know that he went into the RAF because there's a photograph of him stood outside um, West Kirby RAF base, but we don't know what he did there. His um, national service records are either lost or I've just not been able to locate them. But we do know that when he came out of, uh, of the RAF in 1952, I think it was, uh, he appeared to suddenly have a fluency in Norwegian and uh, other Scandinavian languages. So it's very likely he was sent to a language school um, in the RAF. So in the early to mid-50s, he was hanging around in London where he met uh, someone who'd become a big influence on him, um, a guy called John Beresford, who was uh, a trainee doctor. And he also met up with another guy who was a big influence on him, Desmond O'Brien, who we'll come to later on in this conversation. And he, uh, he just did various things. And he, then he decided he was going to go to, to Denmark and, and try and make a living there. So he moved there in, I think, 1955. And he married a, a Danish woman called Ebba. And he managed to make a living there, teaching at a local college and also broadcasting on um, on the radio there about sort of English things, introducing uh, Scandinavians to, to English culture and, and literature and things like that. So. You know, he was quite well sorted out, but he had a problem. He had a huge drink problem, and he was probably an alcoholic at that early age, you know, when he was only in his, in his early 20s. And this led to um, domestic violence in, in his relationship with Ebba, and eventually he decided he'd, he'd had enough of, um, of Copenhagen, and he bailed out, decided to go to America because um, his friend John Beresford was there. So he, uh, I think on, in September 1959, he sailed to New York City and got a flat in um, Washington Square. And he met his future wife there, Sophie Nyman. And he also hooked up again with John Beresford, who was by now uh, a senior paediatrician at one of the New York hospitals. And he found that, that John Beresford had developed an interesting habit. Uh, Beresford was very, very keen on basically getting high. And at that time, there was a shop in, in uh, Greenwich Village where you could go and buy uh, peyote, you could buy um, you know, other forms of hallucinogenic fungi, you could buy all sorts of drugs there. So, and, and Beresford was living a, d a double life. Uh, part of his life, he had a sort of a nice middle-class household with his wife and, and children, but he also maintained another flat, which basically was, at weekends, a party house. And uh, Hollingshead hung out there and uh, all manner of things went, went on. So as this progressed, both of them, Beresford and, and Hollingshead, um, heard about um, LSD. There'd been various things in the newspapers about it. And they thought, well, you know, we like um, peyote and we like all these other drugs. So, wow, we've got to try LSD. And um, the way that they obtained this LSD was Hollingshead persuaded John Beresford to write to Sandoz on hospital letter-headed note paper. And they bought a gram 
uh, of LSD, which duly delivered to their door. Um, it's become known as the, the magic gram in, in psychedelic uh, history. And it was, um, no one knows the exact date that, that, they, that they took it, but they decided to divide it all up using, uh, mixing it into sort of icing sugar paste, into sort of maybe two to 250 microgram doses. And during the, during the process of this, Hollingshead was licking the, his fingers and things like that. And, and within a very short time, uh, the pair of them were blasted into, into a universe that they just could not imagine. And Hollingshead's um, own descriptions of, of that fateful uh, night, they, they transcend words, really. You know, he, he went into the cosmos, he met with the gods. He, he, it, was, it was history, it was all history. It was the future and the past. And he saw, saw all life coming out from the primeval slime a really full-blown psychedelic trip, the, the likes of which um, must have shaken him to his roots. And in fact, it did shake him to his roots. He was very worried about what had happened to him. And he wanted to, to get some sense about, about what had happened to him. So he, he'd read about Aldous Huxley because he knew that Huxley was involved in, in psychedelics. And he phoned Huxley up and he said, um, you know, what do I do with this substance? It's amazing. Uh, and Huxley said, well, the guy you need to speak to is uh, Tim Leary who Hollingshead didn't really know at that time, but um, thought, okay, I'll, I'll get in touch with Leary at Harvard. And at that time, Leary was at Harvard and he was experimenting with um, psilocybin mushrooms. And although he'd had the chance to take LSD several times, he'd turned it down. He was happy with psilocybin. He thought that was sort of the be-all and end-all of psychedelics. So how, how the story goes, and the thing is, we only really have Hollingshead's story for, for the first part of this. There's no other evidence. But Hollingshead yeah. says that he... Um, phoned Leary's office up and spoke to him and said, you know, uh, I, I've got all this LSD. I want to know what it's all about. Can I come and speak to you? And Leary, very graciously, because he didn't know Hollingshead from Adam, said, yes, you know, come for lunch and, and we'll chat about it. So they met, met for lunch um, in uh, somewhere near Harvard. And uh, Hollingshead explained everything. And Leary was sort of a bit patronising, uh, according to Hollingshead, but said, you know, get in touch with me again. I'll give you a ring next week and we'll meet up again. And this never happened. Now, Leary, uh, Hollingshead, for some reason, was absolutely desperate to get in touch with Leary. And what he did was he wrote Leary a letter and said, if you don't get in touch with me by such and such a time next week, I'm going to kill myself, which is, you know, quite dramatic. Now, that's not just what Hollingshead said. That's what Leary says. I mean, he's written several accounts of the letter that he got. And yeah. I think Ralph Metzner was there when it was opened. And, you know, they were quite sort of appalled that someone might kill themselves if they didn't meet with Leary. So... Um, they sent a car around, picked Hollingshead up, took him back um, to Leary's house, and basically he moved into Leary's house that day, which is, is quite mind-boggling. So Hollingshead's living there now. He's living on the top floor, and um, you know the, 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 he's trying to persuade Leary to take uh, LSD, which he's got a huge jar of. And Leary's saying, no, 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 yeah, I like your psilocybin. I can't think there's going to be anything better. I'm not interested. But Hollingshead bided his time. And then I think it was around Christmas 1961, I think it was, the jazz uh, musician Maynard Ferguson was, um, was staying with Leary because they were good friends and, and uh, Ferguson had a gig that, that weekend uh, somewhere in New York. So they were all sat around on, on the Saturday, I think it was the Saturday evening, and uh, Hollingshead said to, um, to Maynard and Fluff, Ferguson, would you like to try some of my LSD? And they said, oh yeah, sure, sounds really good. So he rushed upstairs, came back down with his mayonnaise jar, and they both had a spoonful. And Leary, meanwhile, is in the corner marking some exam papers and sort of just keeping an eye on them. Anyway, after about half an hour, apparently um, Flo Ferguson looked up and just said, um, 
to, to O'Leary, Tim Baby, this is amazing. You've really got to have some. And that sort of convinced him. He thought, well, if his friends are, you know, extolling the virtues of it, then I'll go for it myself. So um, Hollins again went upstairs, came back down with his jar, dosed Leary up. And, you know, Leary's accounts, which he's written many times, were similar to Hollinshead's accounts of his first trip, just blasted him into the cosmos. He had, you know, he, he couldn't account for anything so powerful. It made the effects of psilocybin look like, you know, uh, Sherbert Dab or something like that. So that, that's, that's the story of how Hollingshead got Leary to take it. He's quite a... Um, he's a little bit of a shapeshifter from the sounds of it by this point. He's kind of willing to, you know, do or say whatever he needs to say to kind of get where he wants to be. And he's, he's kind of... I mean, what, what sort of happened straight after um, uh, his trip with Leary? Leary latched on to Hollingshead. And in fact, he used the term to Hollingshead that he thought Hollingshead was his guru. Now, this really worried Ralph Metzner and Richard Alpert because they were thinking, you know, Leary's a very clever, very clever man. Why is he suddenly doting over this obscure Englishman who's turned up out of nowhere? Mm. And their accounts of dealing with, with Hollingshead in those early, early years um, in, in Harvard were that, yes, he was, he would do things to get an effect from people. And if he, thought, he found a weakness in people, he would pursue it and, and sort of torment them with it. And Ralph Metzner uh, recounts one story where he was telling us, Metzner was telling a story about how he'd, he'd once been to this Swiss village to do some skiing or something like that. And Hollings had jumped, jumped into the conversation and said, yeah, I've been there. And then he proceeded to tell uh, Metzner exactly loads of details about this really obscure Swiss village. Now, they were all high on LSD at the time, and Metzner just couldn't understand whether it was being pranked or whether Hollingshead really had been there. And it blew his mind to such a, such a stage that he actually blacked out because he couldn't cope with the paradox of it all. So there were all these sorts of mind games going on. And um, Hollingshead was, you know, try, getting Leary to start doing research on, on LSD. And he was getting involved with the research that, that they were doing there. And eventually that led to, um, you know, Leary being effectively thrown out of right, Harvard. Yeah. And um, could you tell me a bit about, from that point, how he gets to his kind of, where he sort of runs away to Jamaica a little bit? That's quite, I know that's broad strokes, but... Hollingshead was sort of always out looking out for himself. He was a very selfish man. And um, he wanted to go on holiday to Jamaica. I think Leary had gone to Mexico at the time. So he went to the local travel agents and, and booked a holiday for, it, for him and his girlfriend, paid by cheque and said that Tim Leary would, would guarantee it, because he could do that with checks in those days, apparently. And off they went to Jamaica. Anyway, the check bounced, and Leary was extremely uh, annoyed because the, uh, the travel agents phoned him up and said, you know, why are you um, trying to um, um, you know, verify checks that there's no money for? So that led to the first of many uh, relationship breakdowns between Hollingshead and Leary. And another one shortly afterward was um, Leary, sorry, Hollingshead begged the money off Leary to go to a parapsychological conference in um, in France run by um, Eileen Garrett, I think it was, uh, somewhere near Nice. And so Leary paid for him to go, and it was quite a, a good payment. It was paid for the airfare and a fee as well. But then he also, then Leary found out later, a few months later, that Eileen Garrett had also been paying uh, Hollingshead to go. And he'd obviously played one off against the other, yeah. and both had sort of lost money. So he was you know, Leary was really, really annoyed about that. And effectively, Hollingshead couldn't go back and hang out with Leary anymore. So then, I think this was like November um, 1962, he went back to England and he lived in England from, from then until um, early 1963. 
when he heard that his, um, his old friend John Beresford had set up a psychedelic research centre in New York City called Agora, which is, I think, is Greek for marketplace. So basically, he just flew to New, to New, York, New York City, muscled in an Agora, told John Beresford he was going to be living there and working there, and just set up shop there. <laughs> now, we might think that's really surprising and why Beresford just didn't say, well, no, you're not doing that. But mm-hmm. Beresford, apparently, to all intents and purposes, was um, a very, very serious Buddhist. He, he didn't like confrontation. He wouldn't stop people doing things, and he just let right. it happen. Yeah. Um, to the point where, um, in correspondence that I, I've seen, uh, Beresford states that he saw... Hollingshead bugging the phone at, at um, Agora, which resulted in them being raided by the FBI. Again, this is Hollingshead being completely sel- selfish. Why did he do that? Now, nobody really knows, but we certainly it happened because Beresford saw the phone tap. And the likelihood is that Hollingshead had got himself into some form of trouble with the police over there. And this yeah. was his way of, uh, of getting yeah. out of it by snitching on who, to all intents and purposes, was his best friend. So that takes him up to um, to 1964, where he was living in New York, and he was sending stuff out on letter-headed paper called Excelsior Scientific Trust, which I'm fairly sure was just a made-up name to give him some, some gravitas, really. Um, and in late 1964, he heard that Leary had set up shop in uh, Millbrook Mansion in upstate New York. You know, this is a huge mansion. Uh, millions of rooms, massive grounds, and Leary and Alpert and Metzner and others had set up there with the idea of running weekend psychedelic courses and just exploring the limits of um, of LSD. So Hollingshead did what he often did. He just turned up there and said, you know, can I stay? And Leary, being very gracious as he was, had sort of forgiven him by now, so he allowed him to stay. And Hollingshead became like the the clown at Millbrook, if you like. I mean, there are lots of serious people there going, going there for heavy-duty psychedelic experiences, and every Saturday night, the, the lounge with its open fire would all be tripped out with psychedelic decorations, and Leary and Co. would all drop massive amounts of acid together with the visitors who paid for the privilege, and they'd be going on some deep space internal journey. And then, like on one occasion, they saw a light at the window, and they all looked out, and it was Michael Hollingshead uh, dressed in a kilt, bouncing up and down on a trampoline with a strobe light on him. And that was sort of attention-seeking in one way, but it was also doing it to freak people out. And Hollingshead appeared, from all intents and purposes, to have have a talent to be able to manage very, very high-level LSD doses and, you know, navigate through them quite easily and to be able to help other people through them. And he got a reputation at Millbrook and elsewhere, in fact, as being a, you know, the consummate psychedelic guide. But it yeah. was, was a trickster character. And another one of his tricks at, at, at Millbrook was he would get sort of a, a party of enthralled people who were all there uh, very high. And he'd say, you know, do you want to find, do you want to see who, who runs the universe, who is like the ultimate being? And of course they go, yeah, yeah, let's do it. So then he'd get them all to light candles and he'd take them on a tour of, um, Millbrook cellars and around some really weird little tunnels that they had under there and in the end he'd bring them to a dead end and there was something with a, with a sheet over it and he'd whip the sheet off and it was a mirror and people seeing themselves and you know that sort of blew a lot of people's minds there. Yeah. but again it was Hollingshead's way of pushing the boundaries to test how far people would go in late 64 I think it was Leary got married at Millbrook and him and his, uh, his new bride went to uh, India for their honeymoon so the Milbrookites were left to their own devices, and that's when it started to get really weird because Leary and I think it was uh, Metzner or, um, or Ramdas 
Albert Stolpert, got together with some other people in the bowling alley there and just took LSD day after day after day in increasing quantities just to see how high they could actually get. So the whole sort of spiritual ethos of Millbrook was being undermined by, you know, what we might like to call partying, I suppose. You paint a kind of really nice image, in, well, not nice, but a really fascinating image in the book of Michael sort of taking really high doses of LSD, but doing it in a way that kind of disposed with a certain sense of kind of like ritual or seriousness that his contemporaries had, kind of like dropping LSD, pouring a glass of whiskey and just putting the telly on. That's right. Yes, he would do that. I think just again to freak people out, to show that he could do it. Um, he dosed the, the famous journalist uh, Paul Krasner with, with acid unbrunnance. So he's breaking, you know, Leary's first rule of, of um, psychedelics, which is you do not dose other people without their uh, their permission. And I think Hollingshead was, was torn about, about how to use LSD because on one hand, Leary had, and Kurd formulated this very rigid, ritualistic way of, of taking it, whereby, you know, you'd fast for the day before, uh, you'd make sure that, you know, you had lots of religious imagery around and so on and so forth. And Hollingshead went with that, a little way, but he had this other side, which is more like the, the Kenkisi way of, of taking acid, which is just take shitloads of acid and see what happens and have as much fun as possible. So he was on the cusp of, of how to do that. But overall, he, he, was, he was a leery disciple because he saw, him, he saw himself as being like the next leery or a future leery. And I think he hoped that he could recreate himself when he went back to Britain as leery. Now, what I'm there was, when Leary came back from India and found the sort of devastation that um, Hollingshead had helped cause in Millbrook, he decided that he needed to get rid of uh, Hollingshead. So what he did was he said, right, I want you to go to, um, go to London in September of 1965 and set up a World Psychedelic Centre there, book the Albert Hall for next Easter and I'll come over and you know, we'll do a tour of all the big cities in, in Europe and we'll spread the Leary gospel everywhere and you'll, you'll be in the vanguard of this. So Hollingshead thought this was an absolutely brilliant idea, of course. Uh, it was given loads of acid to take back to Britain. It was given piles of um, Leary's books, The Psychedelic Experience, and was seen off the docks at New York on, uh, I think it was the 1st of October, 1965. And Leary and, in fact, Richard Alpert tell a funny story that when they were stood on the docks, sort of waving Leary off, uh, waving Hollingshead off, Leary said to the others, well, that put psychedelic research in Britain back another 10 years. <laughs> so they were happy to sort of get rid of him. Anyway, he arrived in London on, I don't know, the 14th of, the, of October, and he was picked up at Southampton Docks to, before he got to London by his old friend Desmond O'Brien. Now, Desmond O'Brien's quite a key, if shadowy, figure in all this, because Desmond O'Brien came from a very, very rich family. And, um, you know, his family owned land and property and they had uh, financial interests. But O'Brien was the black sheep of the family. Uh, he'd been sent to prison and um, lots of other things in his background. And he was an alcoholic and he liked various sort of drugs. And as soon as Hollingshead got back to London, O'Brien fronted him the money to get a lease on 24 Pont Street in Chelsea, which I think was a first or second floor flat, to turn it into the World Psychedelic Centre. And this was fantastic for Hollingshead because he was getting all his expenses paid. He had drugs given to him at right, left and centre. There were women coming out of the, of the walls to, to, to see him. And he decked out this... Um, 
this flat in Pont Street in a proper psychedelic way. You know, the, the best sound system. They had really deep, lush carpets. They had you know, posters and rugs on the walls. And it was, you know, a fantastic place to trip. And then Hollingshead started sending out these communiques to the, to the London psychedelic community, which, you know, in, in late 65 was there, but it was still quite um, small. And Hollingshead was sort of trying to impose the leery way of doing things on the, um, the London and the British psychedelic community. Well, I don't think what he, what he hadn't accounted for is what they weren't that interested in it, really. You know, people in Britain have been tripping recreationally since like 62 or 63, and they had their own scenes, and there was a lot of spirituality going on and what have you. But they were also doing it purely just for, you know, good old-fashioned cosmic fun. So Hollingshead couldn't really understand why he wasn't sort of fitting in. And he dressed really straight. He wasn't dressed in the garb of, you know, uh, those days, even though... I think Michael Rainey's shop, Hung On You, sent him a, a vast pile of groovy clothes around to wear. And he, he took one look at them and said no, went back to his um, sweatshirt and his trousers. So he didn't look the part, didn't really fit in. And then until he met, he met Joey Mellon, uh, the guy who um, you know, was an advocate of uh, trepanation, drilling a hole in, in the head. And Mellon introduced him to the idea of Bart Huger's, which was that you need to have a lot of sugar in your system when you're tripping because that stops you having a really bad trip. And, you know, Leary's way of doing it was fast for at least 24 hours beforehand. Well, no wonder people had bad trips because you've got, if you've got no sugar in your, in your blood and you take a load of psychedelics, well, you know, it, it's not going to go well for you. So slowly, Hollinger thought, yeah, this is a good idea. And he started giving people sugar with their trips and, and he, he found that it worked. And this was happening at Pont Street, which originally, again, like Millbrook, started off as being a very sort of serious place to go for psychedelic information or to take acid. But slowly, as the drugs increased, became a party house because by now, Hollingshead was taking thousands of micrograms of LSD a week. And to offset uh, the exhaustion that that brought on, it was using heroin to you know, come, come down. And then when he was taking acid, he was taking methadrine with it to give it a little bit of um, forward motion because, you know, acid, especially in those early days, the really pure stuff, could make time just stretch out to eternity. And some people didn't like that. So if you added a bit of speed, a bit of methadrine to, to, your, uh, to your trip, it gave you some forward motion and, you, you know, you went through it a bit smoother. So, but basically, it had just turned him into a methadrine addict and a heroin addict, and plus he was drinking like a fish as well. So and the, the, the Pond Street flat was becoming a party house and taxis were arriving at all hours of day and night with you know, people shrieking and shouting. And it was, it was coming to the police's attention. Now, the police arrested him uh, in January of that year for uh, possession of um, morphine, I think it was. Uh, but he didn't tell any of his friends about it. He kept stum. Um, and some police came and they, they went to one of the parties there and they were accidentally dosed by the psychedelic punch that was on offer. So it was only a matter of time before, you know, the big bust was going to come. Yeah. And, and so it did. And, and what happened uh, there, I think it was, that, all right, so the first time that he'd been arrested, he, he jumped bail and he flew to uh, Geneva in Switzerland, which is quite funny because he sent a postcard to Alex Trocchi, who he was very friendly with, saying he was too high to ski which I thought was quite amusing. <laughs> anyway, he came back um, and on the, uh, I think it was about the 4th of, um, 4th of March that year, or early March, uh, they were all sat in the Pont Street flat getting high and, and what have you. And all of a sudden, a couple of really heavy looking guys come through the door. Now, they didn't have a locked door policy at Pont Street. People used to come and go buy hash, buy acid and so on and so forth. So they just thought it was some customers who looked a bit strange. And one of the guys said, you know, can I buy some hash here? 
And um, Holland said, said, yeah, 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 go in there. Went into a room where Joey Mellon was. Joey Mellon sort of got the hash out. And of course, the, these guys revealed themselves to be policemen. And the five or six occupants of the flat were, were taken down to the cells and, and charged with, um, with possession of uh, cannabis. And they searched the flat thoroughly. They didn't find uh, any acid, even though there was massive amounts there, because at that time, the police in, uh, in Britain and in London didn't really know what to look for. It was such a new drug that, that no one really knew what form it came in. And I think they had it in small vials of, of liquid acid, and it must have just gone unnoticed. So they got away with that. Uh, plus the fact at that time it wasn't illegal to to possess acid, so you know they wouldn't have been charged with it anyway. A long story short, there after the first court appearance, they were Hollingshead was bailed for another date, and he he absconded. He didn't attend his bail hearing, and another bail hearing was set, and he didn't attend that one, and he'd done a runner, and he basically was panicking. He was in such a state uh, mm. through drink and drugs that he didn't know what to do. And he spent several days driving around the north of England, visiting relatives and, and hiding from police who weren't actually following him. Now, whilst this was going on, Desmond O'Brien had given an interview to uh, the London magazine called London Life. Now, London Life was the, it was the magazine that, that kept followed on from the Tatler. And it was like a, a social magazine about you know, all the hip and happening, groovy things in London at the time. And they'd approached Desmond O'Brien and said, you know, can we do an interview about uh, the World Psychedelic Centre? And O'Brien didn't check with Hollingshead and just went ahead and, and did the interview. And this was the interview that effectively was the beginning of the end for, for Hollingshead because Desmond O'Brien um, you know, made, him out, made himself out to be what he called Mr. LSD, which is you know, not the best way of going about things. And he was talking about you know, perhaps we could, LSD could be put in the water supply and dose the whole all of the country, which it couldn't, you know, chemically, it just wouldn't work like that. And the whole article painted a quite a, a scary picture of, of this new drug. And of course, on the back of that, the news of the world and the people picked up on the same sort of story, and they ran some very, very lurid exposes of, of, of Pont Street. Now, all that did really was very few young people had heard of LSD at that time, but with it being spread around in the news of the world and the people, they probably did more to advertise LSD than any other um, thing that's ever happened in Britain. And of course, many people thought, well, off some of that. And, you know, thus the exodus to London started. So while all this happened, Hollingshead's on the run. And in the end, he decides to escape to Copenhagen again. So he flies to Copenhagen, Interpol uh, are informed of this, and British people he's arrested in Copenhagen. British police are, uh, are flown over there to, to arrest him. And the apocryphal story is, uh, although I've heard this from three different sources, so there may be truth to it, that Hollingshead had managed to smuggle some acid on the plane bringing him back, and he dosed the two detectives. And when it landed at Heathrow, he just got off the plane and waltzed off into London whilst the detectives were still looking at the pretty clouds. Um, <laughs> A few days later, after he tidied up his affairs, Hollands had handed himself in and uh, was sentenced to, I think it was 18 months, and um, did the first part of that in, in Wormwood Scrubs. So there he was at the beginning of the first summer of love, but he couldn't do anything about it because he was behind bars, which is, is quite ironic. Whilst in Wormwood Scrubs, he was getting a constant supply of, of LSD being sent in in a variety of ways, such as uh, injected into grapes or down the barrel of ballpoint pens. And he was even visited at one point by, the, um, by Richard Alpert and the famous LSD chemist uh, Augustus Owsley Stanley III. So he had no shortage of, of the means to get high. And when he was in prison, he turned some of the other inmates on, the ones that he thought he could trust, 
And then he tells a story in his autobiography, which is flawed, so we have to be careful how much truth we invest in it, that George Blake, the Russian spy, was in there and on his wing. And Blake asked, asked Hollingshead if he would turn him on to acid, which Hollingshead did, but bitterly regretted it because uh, Blake was apparently very paranoid and, and um, he was concerned they were going to get found out. So that's a, you know, a little sort of anecdote from his prison days. He was then halfway through that, halfway through his sentence, moved to HMP Layhill in Gloucestershire, which was an open prison. And he had a whale of a time there. He took up bird watching, he did various arty things. And him and Joey Mellon, who visited him often, were working on a psychedelic version of Milton's Paradise Loss. Um, and it was quite weird, really. It never got actually um, you know, performed, but it, it gave him something to do. And it was very helpful to other prisoners. He got on really well with all the prison warders. And in a way, it was a bit like the character of Harry Grout in the old British sitcom Porridge. He sort of ran the place in a way. And there's one very funny uh, story from, from there, which is definitely true. Because I've seen it on paper. He has a cartoon in one of the letters that he wrote to Leary, and it shows him standing in front of the, um, the prison governor. And the prison governor is saying, so Hollingshead, uh, you're always on time, you, you never do anything bad, there's no reports against you. What are you up to? And I think that just sums the Hollingshead up totally, that he'd confused the prison authorities so much that they knew that it was tricksy, but they couldn't work out quite how. And he used to wind the guards up by having a, a square of black paper pinned to his cell wall. And when he was asked what that was for, he used to say, well, that's where I go in the night. Sorry, I just wanted to ask about his sort of attitude to the psychedelic experience. And because on one hand, I think he, he seems to have this hugely, this view of LSD as like a kind of transformative, transcendental, almost a kind of like spiritual, pro, uh, political project. And that the more people he turns onto this drug, the more he can kind of transform the world into this sort of utopian vision. As you point out in the book, he, he's also not the kind of person who really uses these drugs as a kind of like self-reflexive way to kind of grow or like gain any deep insight into himself. I wondered if you could talk about to what degree you thought his love of the drug as transformational was sincere and to what degree he was just someone who was addicted to taking mind-altering drugs and kind of built this structure around him that gave it this sense of gravitas and importance that helped kind of shore up his ego in lots of ways. If you read his autobiography, it's sort of riddled with, with spiritual nonsense, really, from my point of view. It's a very <laughs> dense book and very, very hard to understand. It appears that he's saying deeply profound things about the psychedelic experience, but in reality, when you look at what he did, his behaviour and his actions were sort of counter that in that he tended to use it for manipulation purposes, and it was all about him. You know, he was the guru, he was the man who had the acid. You know, he could trip with you and you'd be all right or not if he wanted you to be not all right. And he also had a record of, of, of using it for the purposes of, of um, sexual gratification with women. He, he would often mm. dose unwitting young ladies purely to uh, get into the knickers for want a better way of putting it. And one of, uh, one of the main um, victims of this was um, Lady Amanda Needpath, uh, you know, the, 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 was now a countess and she, she runs the Beckley Foundation. But, and at that time, she was like, you know, a London hippie. And he one day dosed her with, we're not sure how much, but probably a few thousand micrograms with an intent to seduce her. And she was so freaked out, she didn't leave her, uh, her room for a few days afterwards. So mm -hmm. he had that reputation. Now, Joey Mellon, Joey Mellon's opinion of Hollingshead was that he was 
constantly on the search for love and could not find it. He just didn't know how to express love to other people. And that's something that goes throughout his life. You know, he used acid to get himself into situations where he would be adored or he would be loved or he would gain some other sort of adulation, but he never really knew how to deal with it when he, when he got it and always messed it up. And all the scenarios throughout his life, of which there were, he had a very picaresque life, so there was many, many scenarios, they all follow the same pattern. You know, he gets involved, he's very well thought of, he's very good at whatever he's involved in, things look to be going swimmingly, and then he sort of destroys it all by doing something stupid and then moves on to the next scene. Yeah, and you, you write a, a lot in the book about, sort of in the later sections, you talk about his dark side and sort of like the more you researched him and the more you spoke to people about him, the more you realised that this wasn't a sort of handful of horrific sort of events. It was a kind of consistent pattern of behaviour and how you also say that you you could have quite easily painted a very sort of glamorous if inaccurate picture of his sort of escapades and and kind of talking about it now, you can see how, you know, it's like, you know, acid trip, Tintin adventure, but with a very real sort of toxic set of uh, relationships. I wondered if you could speak a little bit about how you felt like you had to handle that because you're writing a biography of someone who, you know, left most people that he had any real relationship with much worse for wear, including kind of family and lovers and Absolutely. And as it became clearer to me that this was a pattern of, of behaviours, and you know, coming up with all these sort of things about how he'd ripped people off and so on and so forth, I thought, can I write all this? Because I'd been in touch with his daughter, uh, Vanessa, who was born in 1961. And, you know, she was very good at giving me lots of information about the family and lots of photographs and things. And I thought, if I write the truth, this is going to destroy Vanessa because it's so, you know, worrying. So I had a very frank conversation with her and I told her what I knew and you know, I told her all these horrible things. And she just said, look, Andy, she said, I know my dad was a, psych- a sociopath. I-, I know it. What I want you to do is to- I want you to write the book, Warts and All. So that was the sort of breakthrough then because I knew I could write what I was finding and otherwise I would have probably had to give the project up if I couldn't have been honest about it. And without Vanessa's involvement, without the information she's provided me with over the years, the book wouldn't have been what it was. So... But it was a surprise, you know, that, that she would uh, allow me to do it. On His sister, um, Jeanette, on, on the other hand, was a completely different thing because it took me years to get a response out of her. And then she basically said, I just don't want to have anything to do with it, I think, because mm. she didn't want the family history being, uh, you know, dragged out into the open. But, you know, that's the nature of biography. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I also wanted to ask you about the sort of, there's a lot of research and scholarship in this book where you're kind of picking through various unreliable sources. And obviously people that take psychedelics, they don't have the best grasp on remembering reality, you know, a material reality of their experiences. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the challenges you faced in writing a book of this kind when there's so many uh, sort of nefarious sources, like uh, Hollingshead himself, lied through his teeth about lots of things could you talk a bit about that process of research well it was difficult because i'd I'd find something and it would be you know quite obvious what had happened and i had everything all the information about that particular event then i'd find another person talking about it from a completely different way and it became massively difficult to actually work out what had happened because it became clear very rapidly that anything Hollingshead said had to be taken with a pinch of salt because it was all self-serving. I mean, as an example of that, his autobiography, which was published in 1973, only covers 10 years of his life. He, He edited out a lot of the things he didn't want in it. So I just had to, as you say, painstakingly just pick through things and come up with a chronology um, on which to hang 
everything. So whilst everything in the book is definitely true, some of the chronology is open to uh, you know interpretation because I had to use whatever I could to nail things down to a time or a date. So I was using a lot of documents and you know a lot of newspaper articles, people's letters and things that, that had a date on them. And, and slowly but surely, I was, I was able to sort of construct this this life. Now, what would, what did worry me, and still worries me, is that I may have been cruel to him, or I may have been, I may have missed things out, and so on and so forth. But I think overall, the arc of his life, it, you know, it is true. You know, he followed the same yeah. patterns, he had the same problems. And so, I mean, just where we left off there with him in prison, a lot of people, there's a sort of fanciful idea that you go to prison. He's, you know, he's been a bit nasty and he's been very abusive to people and he was addicted to these drugs. And then he goes to prison and maybe he kind of gets sober or kind of gets kind of over some of his trauma or whatever. But that doesn't really seem to happen. And he seems to kind of come out of prison with this sort of same motivations and aspirations as he went in with. If that, do you think that's fair? Yes. I mean, all through his time in prison, he was constantly writing to Leary about potential future projects and asking Leary for money and so on and so forth. But Leary just sort of didn't want to play. I think because at that time, Leary was at the height of his infamy, if you like, and he just didn't have time to, to bother writing letters to, to um, Hollingshead. So Hollingshead came out of uh, prison in um, uh, late 68, I think it was. No, late 67. And he, he was absolutely broke. He had no money whatsoever, and he had, just didn't know what to do with himself. So he thought, I know, I'll, I'll fly back. I'll go back to Scandinavia. And he, um, he sailed on a boat to Oslo, and he spent a few weeks, maybe a couple of months at most, up in the hills in a cabin, as he says, translating the, the Icelandic sagas, for which we have no evidence other than his own statement. But it's possibly <laughs> true that we know he could speak those languages, so it could have been something he did. After a while, he got bored of, of being by himself, really, uh, and then decided to go back down to Copenhagen, where he uh, met a woman, a young woman there, and he shacked up with her, and he was doing sort of odd jobs for radio shows and things like that. And then he met up with a, a guy called Simon Spies, now, Simon Spies is a very interesting guy because he was a Danish multimillionaire, even in the, in the 60s, uh, very provocative. He ran strip clubs. He was an exhibitionist. He had sex on stage with one of his actresses. But more importantly, he'd made his money by uh, initiating package holidays for Scandinavians to go to the Med, which, you know, at that time in the 60s was a big new thing. and He made loads of money. And Simon Spies and his friends liked drugs. So Hollingshead used to go to... Um, at Spy's house at the weekend and they do acid and they do DMT and things like that. And then just after Christmas, I think it was, Simon Spies said, you know, if I give you, Hollingshead, a load of money, will you go to London and buy us a load of acid and bring it back and, you know, it would be supplied for, for, for years? So Holling said, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. We don't know exactly how much money he was given, but it was several thousand pounds from what I gather. Hollingshead flew to London and just never went back to uh, uh, to Denmark. A few days <laughs> later, after landing in London, he flew to America and hooked up with Leary again. So yet again, somebody had ripped off because he thought yeah. it would benefit his own sort of position, as and it were. And how does he um, kind of get from there to his time in Nepal? He hooked up with Leary again in New York, and then he, after a while, he flew over to San Francisco, and he was living with Leary there. Oh, yeah. Again, after a while, they, Leary and Hollingshead uh, moved out to Laguna Beach, where the Brotherhood of Eternal Love had a, um, a ranch near near the sea. And Hollingshead was living there with, with the Brotherhood, who were obviously, you know, very hardcore acid heads, big drug smugglers, and sort of, you know, the people really uh, responsible for trying to turn the world on. Right, Even right. Hollingshead said there 
that he took too much acid. Now, for Hollingshead to say wow. that, yeah. God knows how much he was shoveling down, but he was quite worried about it. And in the end, he, he left and he spent um, a few weeks on the Isle of Tonga in the Pacific for reasons that no one's quite sure about. It's possibly was scoping it out for a, a future um, place for the Brotherhood as they were getting turfed out of, of Laguna. But he left there, came back to America and got involved with an experimental filmmaker called Scott Bartlett, who was quite well known in filmmaking circles. And Bartlett at the time was making an experimental film called Moon 69. And he got, he paid Hollingshead to, to help him do this. And I think you can track it down on YouTube. And Hollingshead's face and voice are there, but they're very hard to discern because it's all multi-layered uh, graphics and sounds and things. But the money that Bartlett paid Hollingshead to, to do that enabled him to, to fly to Nepal in, I think it was on the, uh, yeah, I think it's 16th of, of July, 1969. So he flew into Kathmandu there, and obviously Kathmandu was, you know, hippie heaven at that time. Hollingshead had brought loads of California sunshine acid with him, and he proceeded to inveigle himself into the hippie community and become, you know, sort of well-known there, which he did quite easily. He met a guy there called Christoph, a Polish poet who would become quite important in his life because together they started uh, the world's first psychedelic poetry and prose magazine called Flow, as in F-L-O-W, which is the first one was published in early uh, 1970. And he lived there for a while and he was turning people on and he was having lots of adventures and um, uh, taking people up into the mountains and getting them stoned and so on and so forth. But it had enough after a while. I think the heat was coming down on him there because the, the police sort of knew what his activities were and he wasn't particularly um, welcome. Although, you know, he was a friend of the Crown Prince of Nepal and, and he used to have all sorts of parties and connections with, with high up people there. But he came back in, I think it was about August 1970, and there's a curious newspaper clipping in the Daily Mail uh, about him going to Roslyn Chapel in, um, or Roslyn, sorry, in South Scotland to write a book. Now, we don't know how that article got in the Daily Mail, but it's my belief that Hollingshead basically sent a press release out saying that he was doing it. <laughs> he next appears at the Fraternity of the Transfiguration in Roslyn, Middle Earthian, which is very near the, the famous Roslyn Chapel. And he hooked up with some monks there. And um, again, to cut a long story short, he ended up on the Isle of Cumbrae, which is off the west coast of Scotland, not far from Glasgow. And he started a commune there in the grounds of the Cathedral of the Isles, and what the idea was, was he was going to set up this commune there for people who'd been to India and, and um, Nepal and places like that, who were coming back to Western civilization and needed some time to sort of integrate. So the idea was it was going to be a back-to-the-land commune, they're going to be growing their own vegetables, you know, being spiritual and religious and everything. And, they, you know, they slowly accumulated between 20 and 40 people there. And at first, it, it all went swimmingly, you know, they were doing things on, on a proper basis and trying to till the land and so on and so forth. And then, as with all Hollingshead scenes, it slowly started to unravel. Acid came back on the scene and they were having full moon rituals with, you know, drums and guitars and all sorts of things. One of the monks got dosed, accidentally or not, I don't know. And basically the Bishop of the Isles hooked up with the local police force and there was a confrontation at the, at the commune where they were essentially told they were going to be run out of town if they didn't leave the next day. So that was at an end. And there's lots more to that story, which is all in the book. So they had to move back to... Um, back to England and moved back to uh, to London and uh, moved into a house there in Archway, which is the house of the of a wife of one of the communards uh, there. And But 
as all this was happening, and prior to them actually leaving the Isle of Cumbrae, Christoph and Hollingshead had come up with this amazing idea for um, a sort of a, an art installation that told fortunes. Now, the backstory to this is, at that time, and, and Hollingshead and Co and everyone were very much into the I Ching, you know, the Chinese system of divination, and they used it a lot, all the time, to sort of answer questions and use it when they were tripping and so on and so forth. And Hollingshead and Christoph thought, right, why don't we make this real? So they approached uh, Ricky DeMarco, who ran the Ricky DeMarco Gallery in Edinburgh, which is a, you know, a very prestigious art gallery. And they basically got, they rented a building off him, part of his gallery for, I think it was two weeks. And for about a month beforehand, they set it all up. So it was a series of rooms so that the person coming off the street, the customer, if you like, or the querent in, in, in I Ching terms, would come into the first office, the reception office, ask the receptionist their question, the receptionist would type it into a computer and a hexagram would be, would be printed out. And then they were instructed to follow a series of rooms, which were like you know, bizarrely lit to the strobes and there's music and pictures and paintings and all sorts of weird mirrors and things. And after about three or four rooms, they'd come to a final room where there was like um, a sort of a guru type figure sat on a throne, bearded and everything, who would then give them the answer that their particular hexagram. Now, that in itself is quite astonishing, but it was even more astonishing because Hollingshead had hooked up with a computer firm in Newcastle. You've got to remember this is uh, 1970, late, late 71, early 72, when computers were still very much in infancy. And he managed to persuade this computer company to uh, analyse the hexagrams and, and send the information back via computer so that it was there You know, when the querent got to the end of their, um, their journey through the, the building. Now, if that, installation and i don't think installation was even used in art terms at that time if that had been in london san francisco or new york we'd mm. still be talking about it today it would be regarded as one of the crowning achievements of the psychedelic age yet because it was in edinburgh and it didn't receive much press it, it, it's faded into history but to me that that was a huge one of his huge achievements and one that he actually did without ripping anyone off really mm. he ripped a few people off but that's in the book <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, so his next mission then, when he was back in London, living in the Archway House, he started to write his autobiography. Now, that wasn't him sitting down and writing it. What he was doing was he was talking to Christoph, who was making notes, and Christoph was transcribing tapes, and he was reading through Hollingshead's letters and everything. Christoph was effectively writing the autobiography, ghostwriting it. And according to Christoph, the deal was that um, he would get half of the advance and half of anything that came out afterwards. Now, immediately, Hollingshead ripped him off because Hollingshead, when he found the publisher, uh, got an advance. I can't remember how much it was, £500 or something, quite a bit in those days. Didn't tell Christoph. Anyway, the summer continued and uh, it was, Christoph was writing the book. And then one day, Hollingshead was in his room when Christoph came in and he found Hollingshead packing. And Christoph said, well, where are you going, Michael? And he said, uh, I'm going to New York. And I said, but what about the book? You know, what about the, 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 my half of the royalties? I said, mm, sorry, uh, can't really do that because I need the money to go to New York. Walked out of that building, never saw Christoph again. And as Christoph says, Christoph was pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> so once again, you know, he'd done, he'd done his old uh, tricks. Went back to, to America, uh, had, had various adventures um, there before coming back to London again. Uh, and living, it was living with a long-term girlfriend then, uh, Oriel Roberts, I think she was called, and she seemed to have some stabilising influence on him. But mm. he was very, very heavily involved in heroin, methadrine, and drink, and pictures of him from that period of time showing a very heavy set, heavy bearded, and so on and so forth. 
Um, so things weren't going well. Plus, he had no income. He didn't know what to do. He couldn't sort of find a way of making a living. He never worked in the conventional sense a day in his life. Um, but now he needed money. He was re- reduced to the point where he actually had to sign on at the, the, the Dole office, which must have been quite appalling for him. So he decided he was going to do what he did. He thought he did best and start writing. And he was involved with um, the first issue of uh, Britain's only, at that time, Britain's only drug magazine called Homegrown, which was started by Lee Harris, who used to run Alchemy on Portobello Road. And Hollings had, had quite a bit, in, bit of input into that. And as a consequence of that, in, a, in and amongst him going back to Kathmandu a few times, he managed to get writing work with the High Times magazine and Stone Age magazine and various other American drug magazines. So he was doing reasonably well. He was getting commissions to, to, to travel to places to interview people. He also wrote quite a bit for Omni magazine, which is a, an old science magazine that no longer exists. You know, it was at the point where he was interviewing people like uh, Robert Anton Wilson for High Times, you know, one of Wilson's earliest interviews. So he was sort of getting somewhere. And then he let this get the better of him. And he pitched an idea to Marvel Comics, obviously a very big uh, institution with lots of money. And he sort of pitched the idea that if he came up with the text for this series about the beginning of the, the origins of life and so on and so forth, you know, they could find the artwork for it and it would be published and he'd make you know, some money out of it. Now, his meetings with Marvel and the staff there in the early days are a hoot, really, because there was one meeting where he was so stoned that he actually slid off the chair onto the floor. But he didn't see the warning signs and they gave him quite a bit of money, but he didn't deliver what he was supposed to, Kelsey Breeze. Um, and when the guy from Marvel Comics looked into Hollingshead and spoke to people Omni and they said, don't touch you with a barge pole, they'll rip you off. And it appeared that he'd ripped loads of people off by getting commissions for work and he hadn't actually you know, come up with the goods. So really, and this was around sort of 1983-ish, he was persona non grata in America. He just couldn't hook up with anyone. There's nowhere he could make a living or anything. So he was bad alcoholic at this time. He'd hooked up with an American, uh, an American Irish woman called uh, Eileen. I can't remember her second name. She was an alcoholic as well. So effectively, they were codependents in in in, uh, in being alcoholics. Mm. And he knew he had to do something very quickly to to, to get out of the situation. And he met a guy uh, called Michael Frulich, who had known for a while. Uh, who may or may not have been involved in cocaine importation. And Froelich had this, this place down in uh, Cochabamba in Mexico. And he suggested to Hollingshead that he go, Hollingshead go live down in Cochabamba and uh, mentor Froelich's young son. Hollingshead thought this was a fantastic idea. So flew down there and pictures of him at the time show him absolutely rake thin and looking very unhealthy. But he was having a good time. His letters to Tim Leary at that time were all sort of full of positivity. Uh, he was talking about um, starting up a jojoba plantation because jojoba was just becoming popular in, in shampoos and cosmetics, and he thought that was a way of making a living. Personally, I think this was all code for a cocaine smuggling operation. <laughs> couldn't <laughs> prove that. But, you yeah. know, Olivia and, and, and Michael and cocaine are, are a quite hilarious combination. And he had lots of adventures there in different, different places. And then he developed a stomach ulcer, which made him very poorly. And he had to go into hospital for the stomach uh, ulcer. Now, he died on the 30th of um, July, 1984. And if you read various things about him, there are a lot of myths about his death. And it mm. took me years to get to the bottom of it. because Some people said that he, um, he died of a cocaine overdose. Some people said that he'd been out in the carnival and he'd eaten a hamburger and it had given him food poisoning and he died. None of it could be corroborated. And because 
Cochabamba is in the, in the you know the hills of Bolivia, and it's not very easy to get information. I, mm. I couldn't really find much out. Um, anyway, then I, I had a breakthrough. I got, in, I got in touch with some people, one of whom was Michael Frelick, who said, I can tell you exactly how um, Hollingshead died. And the story is, and I think this is as near to the truth as we're going to get, that uh, Hollingshead was in hospital, either having had his operation or awaiting it, and his mm. girlfriend from New York uh, flew in and she brought him a bottle of vodka into the hospital, which he promptly drunk all of. And he, he, he you know, did something to his in, insides and he hemorrhaged and he died. Because, again, it was like 1984 in Bolivia. His family, such as they were, couldn't afford to, to fly out to, to repatriate the body. There was no mm. funeral. And in the end, he was buried in the German cemetery there. Uh, and that's because the German cemetery was the only um, walled and guarded cemetery. And had he been buried somewhere else, um, you know, grave robbers would have, would have robbed his, his yeah. grave. I mean, it is just like an absurd life. And part of that is that he was, you know, he was addicted to drugs and he had to constantly seek out new environments, I imagine, where people didn't know what he was going to try and get out of them. But yeah, there's a couple of figures that kind of have these lives where their escapades kind of take them all over these different kind of countercultural hotspots. But his just seems to be kind of, I don't know. It was kaleidoscopic, you know, and yeah. even I finished writing the book in, in uh, January 2019. Since then, I've, I've had lots more information coming about various things, which, you know, had I had it, I would have put in the book. And I suspect mm. there's even more stuff to be found out uh, that, that I've not uh, located yet. And you see, one of the enduring myths that, that people have come up with about Hollingshead is that it was in some way working for the intelligence services, <laughs> which I, I, I never believed and there's no evidence for. And all this stems from the fact that in, in 1960, not long after he got to New York, he worked for, um, for something called the... Um, I can't remember what it's called now, but it had the word agency yeah. in it. People, people seem to say that about any figure that was somehow influential in the 60s and 70s from Foucault to, you know, Terence McKenna or whatever. But... Leary was working for the CIA initially, but, but then sort of jumped ship. And I think, I think it's possible that, that Hollingshead certainly informed on various people to, to ensure that he kept out of trouble, basically. But, you know, I don't think he was mm. you know, a state asset or anything like that. And also, I think, you know, if he was around these days, he wouldn't be able to get away with what he did then because people are a lot more savvy you know, we have better yeah. communications. Um, you know, I think a lot of the, his ability to do things was because he was a prolific letter writer. He used the telephone a lot, especially transatlantically, mm. uh, and that sort of fooled people as to how he got all the information so quickly. Yeah. The final thing that I want to ask you about is, and we kind of talked about it a little bit before, about, you know, this is undoubtedly a, someone who was kind of amoral, abusive, toxic. When you write a book about someone, to a degree, you're kind of, I don't know, you, you do risk sort of, perhaps, what's the word, you know, glamorising or sort of fetishising them in some way. But I think you seem, you sort of tend to avoid that by being very uh, dedicated to including all the complexities and, you know, the warts and all, which is a phrase that his daughter uses and stuff. And I, and I, I thought the final thing I would ask you is about how you feel about the book. Been out for almost a year now and, and how, how, how the book sits with you now. And I was also interested in what you talk about, the kind of emotional impact that this book had on you, which was slightly different to previous things you'd authored so. yeah, absolutely because it was the first biography that, that i'd written and i sort of approached it in the way i'd write any non-fiction book and, and and that i was soon disabused of the fact that i could do that it was a completely different mm. way of, of writing you know, i was so immersed in, in hollingshead's life that at some points I, I thought i was thinking like hollingshead and it was quite worrying me i was getting into quite a depressed state because i was sort of taking on all his his problems 
And even though, I mean, a lot of things I've said today was sort of quite negative, there is another side to me. It was very, very creative. It was always doing something. It was a mover and a shaker. And I think that, that needs to be taken into account as well. It's just that it wasn't very good with, with, with people, much as they wanted to be. And, and that's the sad thing. So, yes, it, it had a long-lasting effect on me, really. In retrospect, I, I look at the book and I think it's the best thing you know, that I, I've written. I'm very pleased with myself about it. Um, and I really wish Holland Zeddy was alive so I could discuss things with him, but I don't think he'd like mm. it. Well, yeah, no, I doubt he would. I doubt, he would <laughs> I doubt he'd find it sort of flattering, but I think that's, if, if he did find it flattering, it probably wouldn't be a very good biography of him. Well, exactly. And, and that's the problem, isn't it, with biographies? If you don't tell the truth, it's not worth the paper it's written on. Yeah. And, and, you know, he, he did write this autobiography, The Man Who Turned on the World, which is, you can get it on a PDF or on the internet. And it's worth people reading it if they're interested in his life, just to mm. contrast what he writes about his life with what I think are probably the facts about his life, which are quite often at odds with each mm. other, to the point where, you know, he brags in, in, the, um, in, in his autobiography about the famous people that he turned on. Now, some of those people he did turn on, but many of them he didn't. But he'd just like to, to put it forward that he did because it made him seem more important. Okay, I think we could leave it there then. I just want to say thank you so much for chatting to me. And I, I read the book when it first came out and really enjoyed it. And having been able to go through it again before speaking to you, I think it really holds up. It's just such a good book. <laughs> so thanks for letting me ask you questions about it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pharmacological Histories from the MIT Press Podcast. Thank you to Kristen Galano for providing the soundtrack and to Samantha Doyle who edits and mixes the podcast together. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help us grow our audience, please do share the podcast with other people who might like it. Subscribe, like and rate the podcast on whatever medium you're using. If you have any thoughts or suggestions for the podcast, please feel free to reach out via info at mitpress.org.uk.